This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Joe Bergamini. Joe maintains a diverse career as a drumming performer and educator. He's constantly behind the kit for everything from prog rock to Broadway to his touring gig, The Doo-Wop Project. He stays equally busy as the drum editor for Hudson Music, where he has overseen the creation and production of countless books and videos featuring many of the world's greatest drummers, including Steve Gadd, Aaron Spears, Keith Carlock, his former student Mark Juliana, and the great Neil Peart. He is also an author in his own right, having authored or co-authored over a dozen books, the latest of which is The Working Drummer's Chart Book. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. We have some new Patreon content up. Since a lot of us are doing more tracking lately, we're having some of our guests talk about a specific song they've recorded drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of that recording process. New stuff there from Doan Perry, Jim White, and today's guest, Joe Bergamini, talking about this track. So check that out. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. We talk all the time about using skills other than drumming to enhance and enrich your music career, and Joe is as good an example of that as anyone we've talked to. In addition to his outward-facing career as a performer and educator, he's also been behind the scenes on many of the drumming community's favorite books and videos. So let's get to it. Here's Joe Bergamini.
I never realized it, but being in a Rush tribute band was great training for subbing on Broadway. Of course, yeah. I, I wouldn't have made that connection either, but absolutely. It's a part. You execute it every night. Right. And and I, this topic has been coming up a lot lately now that we're getting, you know, thankfully everyone's getting back to gigging, uh, at least here in the States. Yeah. Um, after the pandemic, hopefully our friends in the other countries will follow suit soon. Um, but uh, knowing the knowing the job, that just keeps coming up with my students and, and my you know talking to people about drumming. Like, so when you sub on a Broadway show, your your job is to be the other person. Yeah, you're, you're like no no one cares about your gospel chops. No one cares about your polyrhythms. No one cares about any of that. They want to go into work and they don't want to know that the regular person's not there. Yep. And and so you so you have to know that that's the gig. That's what's going to make you successful on that gig, right? Mm-hmm. Like um so in that environment, I'm just relating this back. So if I was playing a show like Moving Out for instance or Rock of Ages, after oftentimes over a year or two of playing that same music, you know, I would gradually figure out like I think I can I think I can put in you know, something of my own, you know, maybe I was in for a whole week and I was comfortable. You start to figure out the spaces where you could put in something of your own. Mm-hmm. That, that maybe only if you deploy that idea, it might just take things to another level musically for everyone's experience. And I, I tend to be really like uh, attuned to the people I'm playing with. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm deep in the drum world deep, deep in it. I love, I would never criticize a drum clinic, a drum solo, an Instagram drummer. I love all of it, but I grew up to want to play music with other human beings in a, in, in a band. Right. And that's what I love doing. So, and again, there's no judgment on, you know, uh, people who play drums alone for whatever reason. I do a lot of it too. Um, but, uh, my point was, um, finding that time where you could fit in something of your own voice it takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of awareness to the situation of where it might work. Yep. And, you know, when I was playing the show Jersey Boys for a long time, you know, great drum book devised by Kevin Dow, you know, that music is classic music, amazing groove music. I still play it all the time with the doo project. Most of the time, I'm like, you know, there's, if I change this drum fill right here, like, it's not going to make anything better. It's right. just going to be. It's just going to be for me to indulge. What my boredom? I hope right. it's not that. Yep. You know. So you. So you're. If you're. You know. If you're playing like. Ding, 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 it's like there's there's no drum fill that's going to make that better. You, <laughs> you have to know that that you know you have to know that that's not going to work. Yep. Like if you. It's like no, that's not going to work. Um, yep. So so I would always be attuned to the uh, other players and. Um, you know, if, if the stars are aligned and you do it right and you deploy that, you know, thing that just maybe it comes to you in the moment and the guitar player turns around and goes, yeah, you're like, oh, man, that is the greatest experience in life to yeah. have. You know? And that could be one note. That could be like one hit yeah. on one. It doesn't have to be a big, you know, showy fill. Um, but like you, you talk about knowing the job um, and especially in, in the context of. Uh, like a musical or a tribute act or or something like that. I mean, it's there's there's multi layers of it, right? Like there's a can I, you know, it like is there room for me to to be me in this, right? And a lot of times the answer is no. Like you just have to execute something and take yourself out of it. But then if the answer is yes, 
okay, like how do I get to be me? Like what is the appropriate way to sort of insert myself into this? Um, and then like where and when, you know, there are all these sort of like <laughs> if, if the answer to the previous question is yes, like there's room to be me, then the next question is like, okay, how? And if the answer to that is yes, it's okay, when and where, how often? Um, right. But a lot of times, you know, the the answer straight off is nope. <laughs> you don't get to be you. You have to play this job. Right. Well, I think I think that uh, I do think that when you work in high level professional situations with other professional players, your your handling of how you do your thing is apparent to them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've had it said to me by I'll, I'll, like I'll I'll name a name. Um, a guy who I played with a lot was Joel Hoekstra, a great guitar player who uh, he's in White Snake now, but he played with Night Ranger. On his solo records, it's Virgil, you know? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes one of those guys, I've been lucky enough in New York to play with some amazing players where, where you, you actually, it's a little nerve wracking sometimes, you know? Um, Andy Snitzer, the great sax player, I can remember him coming on, you know, we, our musical director, Sonny Paladino, hires great players and he'll hire Andy Snitzer or Dave Mann. And they'll come on the gig and they'll be like, um, I'm like, hey, what's up? And I'll be like, ah, oh, you've been playing some club dates, you know, did a couple, whatever. What have you been up to? Oh, I was just out with Paul Simon, you know, in Snitcher's <laughs> Kid. Oh, cool, cool. Who, who, who was on um, uh, Gad? You know, Gad was on that. Right, you know? and then, right. you know, and, and then I went out with Sting for a couple. And, and you know, I'm like, oh, was, was that, um, and again, it was Vinny on that. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, well, I'd like to apologize in advance for tonight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's nerve wracking, but. The funny thing was that um, one of the nicest things that you can, I, I guess as drummers, you know, we want to be praised for the glory of like playing like Buddy Rich and playing for all the, the chops. And, and that's great. Like, that's certainly, um, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're going up there to do a drum clinic, people want to be wowed and you got to deliver the goods. Or yeah. if you're coming to see a prog band, they want to. You know, they want to walk out saying, oh, my God, what just happened? I, I didn't know where one was. You know, that's <laughs> that has like I love that. Um, but, you know, if you're doing on my gig that I was on this weekend and, you know, you meet a new bass player and he's kind of reading the thing. And then at the end of the first gig, he's like, man, you're so easy to play with. Thank you. You know, you're like, that's that's wonderful. Yep. That's like that's that's me. That's not that's not me. You know. Just because I didn't play a lot of fills, that doesn't mean that wasn't me, my right. personality. Yeah, yeah. And and so Joel, like I was making a point, and and I, you know, I've been at this long enough that I can sense it with other people too. Like Joel would be like, you know, later on in the thing, he'd be like, as for after I knew, we would always hang and talk shop and stuff, and he'd be like, man, I really appreciate how you do this gig because mm. like you know, John plays it, John Weber, the drummer, he's like pretty much plays it the same way, and like. I know you, you know, you play it like him and I appreciate it. It's like, I can, and I can tell if you wanted to, you could do a lot more if you wanted, but, and, and that's not to say the parts were easy or hard. It's just, it's like knowing the job. Like if you're, if you're you're going in and it's subbing, now subbing is a weird animal. It comes with its own stress and whatever. Like if, you know, but if you're, you know, practical advice, I want to give some practical advice to our listeners, you know, if you're subbing for somebody and it's a show environment and you go watch them play the show to prepare like five times and they play it the same way every time, then when you go in to sit in their chair, play it the same freaking way they play it. Yep. One, you know? Yeah. It's interesting um, that like, you know, I think a lot of our instinct, especially as younger drummers, um, 
you know, if, uh, if, especially if we're subbing for someone and we have like a little bit of room to be ourselves, um, you know, a lot of us are inclined to just like reinvent the wheel and be like, I'm going to show these guys like something completely different and it's going to blow their fucking minds. Um, and sometimes that works out. Sometimes that reflects well on you, depending on the environment. But like you're saying, a lot of times just like doing everything you can to be a carbon copy of what they're used to will make a better impression and, and, you know, do, do better for yourself in the long run. Yeah. Well, I would, I would just say we had the, the distinct pleasure of just finishing a book called Gadaments with Steve Gatt. Yeah. I want to talk about that too. Yeah. So I've gotten to know Steve a bit better over doing it. And I think what you just said, just think about Steve Gadd. Think of Steve Gadd playing with James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Why does James Taylor hire Steve Gadd? Certainly, there's plenty of drummers who could play his music. It's not what we would describe as technically difficult. Right. Why, is, why does he hire Steve? He hires Steve because he, James Taylor has utmost taste in music, and he wants the greatest groove drummer alive mm-hmm. for his on the stage with him. And do you think that if Steve was worried about inserting himself and his chops into that gig that he of course not yeah he's steve gadd just wants to play great music mm-hmm. and if if he's playing with chick korea he's going to play the number of the amount of notes and the and improvised ideas that su- suit that and if he's playing with james taylor it's like there's the the idea of the idea of his ego dictating what comes out of his instrument never crosses his mind He's just there to play the music. Yep. So, so if you're thinking about impressing people, I, th- you know, there's a difference between trying to really do a good job and being a little on edge because you want to really do a good job on this gig because you want to play this music and with these musicians and you respect them, you know, and I, I want to go in and, and make sure they like what I do so I can work with them. Yeah. Versus how can I impress these guys with my mad skills? Right, right. One of those things is, you know, I mean, to me is a little bit more ego-driven. On on one hand, it's all ego-driven because, you know, we're performers, so you have to have confidence. You know, nobody wants to play with a drummer who's like, I'm not sure how fast this is. You know, like nobody wants to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They want the drummer to be like, guys, this is where it is. Boom. Yep. I know this job. Yeah, but um, but anyway, don't you know that that's that's one of those things that that uh, I think you know the people if if you do watch a lot of Instagram videos and stuff, um, and you have a diet of more of that than you know playing in real situations with people, you run the risk of maybe not knowing when to deploy the big guns and maybe uh, you know coming out with a little leg on your face. <laughs> Let's talk about these uh, these couple of uh, publications that you've been part of recently, and you you mentioned Gadamans. Um, start with yeah. that. What is what is that about? So Steve Gad was uh, like all of us stuck at home during the pandemic, and he just started um, playing rudimental patterns on his coffee table with uh, Vic Firth chop out sticks, which you know those with the yeah. rubber tips. Yeah, yeah. 
So you don't even need, I travel with them now, like you, you could just, you don't even need a pad. You just play on the dressing room counter, your coffee table, you know, your bass player's head, whatever, whatever hard item you could find, right. you just play on it. Right. So, um, just, just what every non-drummer wants in the room. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so Steve was, uh, playing around his house with those and, um, playing with rudimental patterns and, um, you know, as, as his extreme high level of musicality, he just started displacing some of the patterns. Um, so for instance, if I, if I play, if I play on this pad, can you, is it okay? Can I you? think so. So if you, so let's say that you're playing flam paradiddles. If you put one note after each one, it displaces it, right? I, I mean, I just yeah, displaced it a couple different ways. So he um, made up phrases, you know, for two, four, and eight-bar phrases, displacing rudiments, almost all the rudiments, really, and, and with a special emphasis on flam rudiments, which are chop busters, let's face it. Yeah, yeah. And um, his whole idea is for you to, you know, work on your chops while you work on your phrasing and your understanding of where things fall in, in, uh, against the time. So for instance, if you're playing, if you're playing the same exact sticking, like let, 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 let's say you're playing, you know, I'll try one that I'll, I'll probably screw up. I'll put, <laughs> I'll put the click on. Let's say you're playing, You know, if you start it in a different place, it it feels, you know, it might feel comfortable on the downbeat, but when you move it, it doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's something that uh, actually probably my favorite drum book of all time is Future Sounds, David Garibaldi, which he uses that same exact concept with his two sound level concept layered funk grooves. Mm -hmm. um, so Gadamans is like a little more approachable than that because Future Sounds, I mean, like when you displace his permutation study 11 i mean you have to shed that for a while before yeah. you hear it but this stuff is it, it it's challenging but in a fun palatable way and if you teach it's gold to work with your students um it's spiral bound so you can lay flat on the music stand and steve really thought through everything about it so he insisted that we find an old school um hand engraver he didn't want it done with finale or sibelius so we found an engraver to do it by hand oh wow yeah, and he all the little R's and L's or everything's written by hand, and uh, he wanted a old-fashioned typeface and the paper to have a little more of like a cream color, and then he even we even have when he wrote like a three-page um, exercise, you know, like um, where he he had thing with six-stroke rolls displaced three ways, and it was going over three pages. He insisted we have it be a fold out like a real chart yeah so you can lay all three pages which which is expensive to do with it's what the reason you don't see that a lot is it's expensive to print right um so we did all that and um he has he recorded video for every exercise oh cool and um yeah it's really like a masterpiece um you know i got to be the editor for it and you know he'd be we'd be meeting on zoom and he'd be like joe have you have you played you know have you played through some of this and, and I'd be like, you know, 
uh, yeah, he's like, well, would we, you know, I'm wondering about this Swiss flamadiddle thing. Like, can you, you know, can you play number one for me, you know, like play, play, num- play them num- like now, yeah. right now. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. So, you know, and he'd be, and he, and he would like, I'll play with you. And I'm like, well, Steve, you, we're on zoom. It's <laughs> not going to be like together. He's like, no, he's like, no, I'll, I'll come in. I'll wait for you. And then I'll come in. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we, we, you know, that happened a lot. Like, and then we would play it and I'd be like, you know, nervous. Like right. I'm playing you know, with Gad with the stuff he wrote. Right. He's like, I just want to see if like, you know, like guys will get it, you know, like, so, so just play, play you know, and we played it the first time I was like, you know, I did it right. I like got through it. I got a little uncomfortable. He's like, yeah, man. Yeah. He's like, you, you were a little ahead of the click on that last bar. And I was like, yeah, I, I know. I, you're Steve Gatt. Yeah, I love, I, I love that. Like, you know, his, his initial thing is like, yeah, I just want to see if it makes sense. I want to see if people will get it. And then like a minute later, he's busting your balls about the click. <laughs> but wait a minute. Let me just say, that, you know, Rob Wallace, the, Hudson, the uh, owner of Hudson. I'm like, Rob, I hope Rob doesn't listen to this and get any funny ideas, but like, I'm getting paid for this. This is part of my job as an editor. Like, I'm. I should be. Pay- it's like I'm getting a lesson from Gad. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. My my seat with Hudson as the editor has just been. It's just been ridiculous. You know, Neil Peart and Steve Gad and Steve Smith and Neil. You know, was, Neil was and Steve is. You know, Smith are good friends of mine. You mm-hmm. know, and all these guys, Aaron Spears. You know, Keith Carlock down down the line. Like to just help and work with them on their projects it's it's like complete dream come true and it's funny like no i didn't even know that this kind of a job existed being the editor for hudson music i I had no plan to get it i didn't even know it existed right i didn't i didn't really know it it existed either and you know as you're talking i'm realizing that like you know all of these videos uh and instructional things and and books that that we interact with over the decades as drummers um you know i think sometimes we get a a false impression that like whoever's on the cover whoever the author is you know quote unquote author or or whoever is in the video um it was you know that that this product was like their conception from start to finish. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. Usually, usually there's a guy like you <laughs> sort of behind the scenes, helping them develop it, helping them organize it. Um, and so, I mean, like, how did you, how did you come into this position? Um, well, let, let me just add on to what you said there. Um, the, with Hudson, the, the, the guy, you know, the, the guy's, who were documenting, you know, I do, you know, it is their concepts. My, my, my gig and Rob's gig, you know, our thing is to just, you know, help them to get it distilled into a, you know, beautifully clear, user-friendly, enjoyable, artistic package. Right. And um, if, if I have any ideas to add as an editor and I feel like it would help it out, I, I certainly would not be hesitant to add that in, mm-hmm. but, but depending on the project and the person, um, again, know the job. Like if I sense that somebody might be open to a suggestion, um, but basically my, my job is to check things over and keep it organized. And, um, and then also that's the editorial side. Then there's the acquisitions part where, you know, dr- the drum scene is just so awesome. I just love it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm so deep into it and, we all write books. Those of us who haven't had a book want to have a book out. And let's face it, it's a feather in your cap to have a book out. And, yeah. You know, like 
I love all these different drum books. I mean, they're, they're almost like albums to me at this point. Like, mm. you know, um, Gadamance is like a document of, of Steve's personality or Mark Giuliana's book that we did with Hudson or, um, you know, Jimmy Branley's book, you know, and not just the Hudson books, but everybody's books. So, um, I just really enjoy that, uh, ability to like help somebody distill their idea and sometimes get somebody to get their idea out. Like, um, we have a book out with Hudson. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's called the breakbeat Bible. Yeah. So, so the author, Mike Adamo, he was my student Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he got really into that type of drumming and he was like working on this project. And, you know, in in that case, he was like, I hadn't spoken to him for a couple of years. He studied with me for four or five years in high school, played, played his butt off. And then he moved out to the West coast, calls me up one day. Hey man, I just want to catch up. I have this idea for a book. So I give him this like big speech. Like I, just cause you studied with me, I can't get you published. Like, I, <laughs> I'll put you in line with everybody else, man. I'm not sure. And he gives me the thing and I'm like, well, this is amazing. This yeah. is and, and the cool thing about the Breakbeat Bible was what I look for when I'm looking at a new book. It hasn't been written about a million times before, mm-hmm. but it's still something that a lot of drummers can use and will buy. Because let's face it, you know, you, you can write about, you know, um, uh, you know, multi-tom polyrhythmic fills in bebop, uh, in odd time bebop, you know. Nobody's written a book about that yet, to my knowledge, but probably like only two people would buy it. You yeah. Know? So, um, so that's kind of what, what you're looking for there. But, um, yeah, I, that's just cut my next piece of friendly advice to our listeners. It's like, if you're going to write a book and send it to me for consideration, be me for a second. You know, if somebody comes to me and they're like, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I did, you know, uh, I have this great book about, uh, they're, I'm constantly getting things like, you know, I did a book about paradiddles, you know, this awesome book about paradiddles. I'm like, you know, there's like, a hundred books out of that. <laughs> what, like, what, like, why would I want to publish? Be, be me. Like, say to yourself, well, why would I want to publish another book about paradiddles? Right, right. You know? Have you read uh, every other book that's out there that's about that's, paradiddles? That's like, the thing. Yeah, yeah. Do your research. You know? Yeah. But what you want to know how I got how I got into the whole editorial side? Yeah. I used to like you know transcribing things, and so I did it just for fun and got pretty good at it, and then I got published in some magazine articles and then um my teacher don famularo asked me to help him with his book it's your move so i started learning about the layouts and things like that and then little by little i just you know i got an article published in modern drummer the editor at the time was bill miller my late friend there who was a really big supporter of mine in the early days bill used to publish my transcriptions in the magazine and then he was like why don't you write a column called rock charts and i wrote so i transcribed every month and i wrote a little analysis and then dom asked me to do it's your move that came out with at the time with warner brothers so i got to meet uh the crew ray bryce and some of the guys who were doing warner brothers and um and then Ron Spagnardi, the founder of Modern Drummer, and Bill asked me to write the book Classic Tracks, which is a transcription book. And simultaneously, I was getting to know the people at Warner, especially my friend Ray, who was the drum book. He was essentially the acquisitions and editorial guy there. He didn't do the copy editing, but he did acquisitions. He was a drummer. Um, he's not in the business anymore, but he studied with Jim Peterzak at Potsdam, you know, great player. Mm-hmm. And he... Um, so then shortly after Classic Tracks came out, I kept telling Ray, 
you know, there's that Drum Techniques of Rush book that's been out forever. And there was a Drum Techniques of Led Zeppelin one that went along with it that still you can get. And it's full of mistakes, like full. <laughs> so I'd be busting Ray's chops like, dude, this Zeppelin book's full of mistakes, man. Like, so they hired me to redo it. That was Drum Techniques of Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. The brown cover. And I still get people coming to me for lessons because they bought that book and then they Google my name. They're like, oh, this guy teaches. I bought your Zeppelin book. Will you teach me? I'm like, yeah, of course. So, um, so I did all that. It started with getting published. And then I just kept doing it. I kept looking for projects and the ones I did, you know, sold well enough that, you know, the new projects would come up. And um, then I was at the NAMM show just kind of networking and I had a friend, Chris Gialfa, who's a at the time was a vice president at Carl Fisher. And he's like, I knew him from the New Jersey band scene. This mm-hmm. is all networking at, at trade shows, clinics, you know, and be like, Oh man, you know, you should do a book for us someday. Cool. Cool. You know, just networking, just like you do for gigs. Right. And then one day he's like, you know, we need a drum editor for Carl Fisher. And I'm like, would you, would you be interested in that? And I'll be like, yeah, def- definitely. You know, um, Oh, good. He's like, good. I'll, I'll, I'll set up an interview with the CEO, you know? And are, are you walking away thinking like, what the fuck is a drum editor? <laughs> I, I, so I let him set up the interview. And then like, I, I, I think I might've called him back the next day. And I'm like, uh, by the way, what, what does a drum editor do? <laughs> you know? And he, and he's like, you know, you have to, you have to, um, you know, get, take the projects and bring them to completion, make sure the content is good and that it will sell. And, you know, manage the budget and you have to acquire new projects for us. So I went in and interviewed with the guy. He gave me a budget. I think, I think it was like 40 grand or something. I can't remember. He had signed a, a female um, hand drumming art, uh, uh, artist who was doing like drum circle hand drumming type content. Mm-hmm. And he's like, here's the budget. She lives on the West Coast. You need to go out to LA and bring in this DVD project by October, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, no problem. So right. I, I set my OCD, you know, mind to work on that and and did it and then started signing people and then I was the editor for Carl Fisher for a while. And um I I did a, actually with them I did three books. You know, they're not great with uh unfortunately distribution and things, but the books we did I think were good. Uh, I I actually at the time preceding me Sandy Feldstein had been there. So so we had books by Weckle and Akira Jimbo and Rick Latham, whatever. But um, I, I did a book with Scott Rockenfield from Queensryche. These are these artist-type books, like the Neil book I did. Right. One with Jason Bittner and one with Chris Penny from Dillinger's Skate Plan. And, um, and then I was kind of like thinking there were some things going on at the company I wasn't really happy about. So I was with – Bittner was doing a clinic at the Collective and – I had just done the drum book with him for Fisher, and he's like, Joe, listen, look, man, I'm, I don't mean, I hope you don't get angry, but I signed with Hudson for a DVD. And I'm like, bro, are you kidding me? I would sign with Hudson for a DVD too. They're the best in the world at drum book stuff. The only reason I've never done anything or even talked to Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel is because why would they need me? They already know what's going on. They didn't need some idiot kid from Jersey to come in there and muck things up. So I went down to the clinic, and Rob and Paul were there. And, you know, everybody's breaking up and they were alone, you know, and I approached them and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I introduced myself, I'm currently drum editor, Carl Fisher, but I'm thinking maybe, you know, I just have admired you guys, you and your work for years. Mm-hmm. And I just figured I'd throw that out there in case you ever needed somebody. And they both kind of looked at each other and said to me, you know, we're actually thinking of growing the business. Why don't you uh, send us a resume? 
So I went home, made a resume. <laughs> uh, and I sent it to them and they hired me like a week later. Wow. And, um, and, you know, I kind of told them, um, they, would, they had been really known for um, uh, their DVDs and video productions. For those who don't know, Rob and Paul were the guys at DCI Music Video. They owned Drummers Collective in New York City. Right. And they started DCI Music Video. So Steve Gadd up close, the classic Dennis Chambers, Omar Hakim, Simon Phillips videos, all the Buddy Rich tribute concerts. That's all them. Right. So when I went up to them, I was like, look, my specialty is books. I transcribe, I engrave, I do layouts, I can do personality books, you know, and I think that, the, you know, as with any other business, you know, you're always growing your team, maybe there's turnover in your team. I don't know if they had turnover in the team, but I just kind of got them at the right time. And then I started working with them and it was instantly into like, okay, help us organize this Keith Carlock thing we're doing. We're going to meet with Keith for breakfast on the Upper West Side next week. Come with your notebook, you know, and boom. Then we're at the NAMM show meeting with this guy. We might sign this guy next year. It was like, trial by fire right I was like deep end over, yeah i was overwhelmed at first um so yeah, that, that keith carlock uh video with uh tim lafave and wayne Krantz, that was like one of the first projects you did for hudson yeah it was early on yeah. wow that's crazy god what a video that is man what a what a group yeah it was it was pretty amazing and uh yeah there again keith is like a like a gentleman it was like a pleasure working with him aaron spears was shortly after that it was great um but that's kind of how i got into it and i i i tell i tell that story in detail i've told a lot of times it's funny like i was again talking to Stuart copeland he's like tell the same story it becomes like a bit it's like material (laughs) totally um but uh i tell the story because i do as you probably know, I teach a lot and I'm always getting asked career advice, you know, career consultation too, pros, Mm -hmm. you know, I love doing it. I just love, I, for one thing, I'm just curious about life paths with people. Like I I just find it like, I never thought I'd be playing the Beijing blue note with a friggin' doo-wop group. Like how the (laughs) hell did that happen? Right. Right. It's just awesome. And so I love the advice, but all of this stuff was just, by being out there, like mm-hmm. going to PASIC, going to the NAM shows, meeting people, talking about the music we love, you know, making sure people know what you're up to, but not in a pushy way, never, never feeling resentful or bitter if you, you didn't get the gig that you wanted. The minute you go into that, you're toast, by the way. Yep. Yep. You know, um, and I, I sort of wound up in this career where it's like I have like a tripartite, like, the three pronged, I have my gigs, I have my teaching, and then I have my industry, you know, editorial consultation. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a three headed monster, just a giant. <laughs> like... well, the one good thing is as soon as I get bored with one, I just jump to the next. <laughs> right. But, right. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I had this like, you know, Stephen Covey style, like, you know, I'm going to write a self-help book to tell you how I do. No, no, yeah. it's not like I, I I'm not going to, you know, I don't know. I, I'm sure a lot of that stuff is helpful and it's good, but you know, the, the recipe is you got to, in this business to me, it's like, you just got to be really, really good, you know, know what the job is and be out there in a way that people find out about you and be pleasant to be with, you know, do what you do, what you say you're going to do when you're going to, you know, when you say you're going to do it mm-hmm. and, and be fun to have it, the people doing it with you and, and then just, 
keep at it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You've, you've touched on a few of the, uh, you know, recurring themes that, that, um, keep popping up in the, you know, 320 some odd interviews we've done, um, which are, you know, like no two paths are alike. Do not compare your path to someone else's path. Um, and you know, like your, your conception of what you think your career is going to be is rarely what it ends up being. Um, so don't get too attached to like, you know, a certain identity professionally. Um, and it's, it's about relationships. It is all about relationships. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to say, um, we just did a gig with the Omaha symphony with the Duop project. And I mean, first of all, after a year of, you know, I've been playing again, but to get on a symphony hall stage with the 60 piece or, I mean, I was just like, man, what a gift this is. And yeah. what, how, how great it is to be back to it. But I took my son with me, and they were really cool. And the, conduct, the conductor there, um, Ernest Richardson, the pop conductor, um, he was such a nice man. And he let my son sit behind us on, on stage during the um, rehearsal. And um, when we were leaving, he was just so nice and so complimentary. And I told you know, he's like, well, Nick, my son, Nick, he's like, what, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm majoring in performance and music business. And, um, and he said, that's great. You know, this is a or- uh, professional orchestra conductor, all these people with masters and PhDs in music. And he's like, that's good. That's good. But don't forget, none of that stuff matters. Yeah. The only thing that matters is what you sound like. And I was like, I, I been, that's what I've been saying. You know, I don't have a degree <laughs> in music. So, but to hear a conductor of a professional orchestra say that it was just yeah man you know it's just sound great and be cool you know yeah yeah that's it it was like a sean pelton's uh you know drum clinic at the modern drummer festival uh where he he's like people always ask me how do you how do you break into the new york uh studio scene and he had his he had his his flip board with his marker right what's the first page it was like don't be a jerk was like the first (laughs) i don't know if he used the word jerk it might have been off color kind of actually wear a, a few different hats just within the the Hudson hat that you wear at one is like as uh, as an editor helping other artists sort of develop their thing but you've also done um, you know original books of, of your own concept um, and the latest one is the working drummers chart book mm-hmm. yep so uh, w- when it comes to writing uh, I still I, I really love and enjoy working on drum books just like we talked about with the music gigs, I, just because, I, like, if I was the editor at Hudson and I was constantly inserting myself into, like, you know, I have to write everything, I want to write everything, it, it just wouldn't work. It's not, you can't be like that. When you, you, have to, you have to take yourself out of that and stop trying to, so, so I, you know, if I have a really, if I have what I think is a good idea for a book, then I develop it, but I don't, try to insert myself into everything. So I just want to say uh, Dom Famularo and I have a publishing company called Wisdom, which is distributed by Alfred. So some of, some of my books are with that company. Oh, so I see. Arrival with Wisdom, distributed by Alfred. And then I co-wrote Dom's book, Pedal Control, with him. So that's mm-hmm. with Alfred. So um, so that that's like a – we're like a boutique publisher. Right. So we sign – you know, like most of the guys are uh, players that Dom and I know that we feel are worthy of being published – 
you know, probably not the bigger names. And so we have our little thing. And Hudson distributes the digital books for, for wisdom. Yeah. So, uh, so, I, so it's nice. So I'm, we're able to, you know, it's funny because, like, we, I, don't, I don't look at it as them being competitors. Like, you know, wisdom has a smaller catalog. And we have Hudson distribute the catalog. So it's very open. You know, it's really yeah. cool. We get yeah. So, um, so when it comes to uh, the writing stuff with Hudson – um, you know, I'm always so busy with the editorial stuff and it's so, um, time consuming that I have, as far as writing, um, when I, when, when Rob wanted to do the Neil Peart project, he came to me and he said, you know, you're, you're the guy, I know you're the guy to write this. Mm-hmm. So I had a separate agreement to write the book that's outside of my job as editor. Um, and we're, we have some other projects that we, we'll be doing where I'll be doing some writing like that. Um, but my new book, the working German chart book was just, you know, sitting home during the pandemic, looking at my folder of 500 song charts. I was like, I bet you this could be of some use to somebody. And my <laughs> students always ask me about like, how do you meet, you know, you always say you're going on a gig this weekend where there's 20 songs you don't know. And you had to make charts. How do you do it? Um, so I basically wrote a short book about making, drum charts to get you through any type of gig um, using uh, some shorthand combined with regular notation. Mm-hmm. It has about um, 26 professionally engraved charts, and I included three of the handwritten ones of, so you can see how I actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just talk about the process of making charts, what's important to put on them, uh, how to use them to get you through a gig where you have no rehearsal and a lot of songs you don't know. Um, and then I have a little section about um, using metronomes and apps and things um, to make oh, sure cool. you're at the right tempo and organize yourself with your, you know, tablet with your charts on the gig and how to navigate the gig with that stuff. Um, it's just, uh, you know, very focused on this one little topic that I felt like hadn't been written about before. Yeah. And, um, it's been yeah, talked it, about a lot. And like, you know, of course, especially in Nashville, everybody talks about the Nashville system. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, like going back to what you said earlier about like, is is there a market for this idea in, you know, the, the greater landscape of books? Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a, a book like specifically dedicate dedicated to how to make drum charts. Yeah. And, and, and like I say in the beginning of the book, it's not transcriptions. Mm-hmm, right. These are not transcriptions, nor do I want a transcription. Um, if I'm playing a wedding or I'm playing a club date or I'm playing a corporate, I don't want, especially if it's, if, if it's, if you, you know, if I'm playing with um, the moving out band or one of the big Billy Joel tributes at a huge theater, I'm, I'm probably going to know the arrangement. But, you know, if you, when you start doing corporates and things or club dates, you, the leader might be like, you know, you know, saxophone, keep going, you know, guitar player, you solo. Right. So you want a high level thing where, like I'll make I'll I'll make a chart based on the recorded version of a pop tune, mm-hmm. and but I don't want to I don't want to see a transcription like because if he decides to lengthen the verse, like I'm still I'm still using my ears and eyes to the leader and the other musicians, coupled with the chart. So they're roadmaps, right? Right. And that that was the thing that I thought would be kind of cool. Um, there's some Facebook groups out there. You can the Drum Chart Archive is the one I like. Oh wow. Yeah, and they actually guys share. But you know, the thing is, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not the kind of guy who goes in there looking for the charts. 
for a couple of reasons. I mean, I don't, I usually don't ask people for stuff for free when they spent time on it. That's one thing. Number two, I learn the tune when I'm making a chart of it. Yeah. And number three, I don't trust people who I don't know to have done it right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the uh, I'm sure the 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 drum chart world is is only one corner of Facebook. That's it's it's yet another corner of Facebook that's full of misinformation. <laughs> well, but the thing is that, that that drum chart archive group, I love it. Like I've and, and I go in, I share my charts in there. Like ones that you know, if I have like somebody was asking for a Bob Seger song and I had it. You know, I put it in there and then, you know, and that gives me a little, you know, they know me from my books. Like, oh, Joe's here. Right. Then when I go in and say, by the way, I have this new book about charts, you know, they don't delete my post because I I gave some free stuff, you know? And then, and then also, you know, they, they put up with me wagging my finger like, you guys, it's great to share, I get everything for free, but don't forget to buy a book once in a while. (laughs) Got to support the people who are putting this stuff out. Right, right. Um, Well, and that, that, that Facebook group and, and other resources like that, I mean, that's, that's, giving people fish right but this book of yours is teaching people how to fish yeah and and i would say i i tried to choose songs that like you could use on the gig so it's like uptown funk is in there right. like you know songs i i they're real charts i made so mm-hmm. they're songs and and not, they're not like all drum drummers drum charts like there's Katy perry song in there there's a i don't know you know whatever other new stuff in there yeah um yeah and and uh it, it helps me get through through those kinds of gigs. And even if it's not uh, music that drummers might listen to a lot, um, you know, th- when you go and you do the job, either you know the song and you play the right groove at the right tempo and you do it well, or you make it obvious that you've never listened to it and you don't know what you're doing. Right. So, so it, it, like, it's fine if you want to say, I hate Justin Bieber, he's worthless, I don't listen to him, he's junk, whatever. If that's your opinion, great, I don't care. I might say he's great, I, you know, whatever. The point is, it doesn't matter. If his song gets called on the gig, and you're there to play the song, then, then you have to do it well. Yeah. You know, and then, and then, you know, when it's your turn to be the leader and you want to make your... Uh, you know, preferences known as to what constitutes great music, then yeah, then you can, you can do something that's the furthest away from Justin Bieber and that's, you know, the, you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. I'm just, yeah. I don't mean to use one person as an example. I'm just trying to yeah. make a point. But anyway, the book's called The Working Drummer's Chart Book. Um, it's out by Hudson Music. It's um, in physical and digital version. Mm-hmm. And um, you can get it everywhere, like Amazon or whatever. And uh, it's, the response has been really good. We actually we we printed a small number to see how it would do. And we sold through the first printing already. So oh, good. The second. Yeah. Nice. And um, I think it's kind of fun too because I I like I love books like Future Sounds and Mark's book and Jimmy Branley's book and you know, but those books you got to shed those books. Like yeah. my book, it's just you know you can read it and, and have fun just reading it and then learn a little thing. It's you know I like books that also have the other topics that you know. I don't have to shed for six months to get through two pages, you know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. It reminds me of a, there's a, there's a great cookbook called, uh, Ruhlman's 20 It's by Michael Ruhlman and it's 20 chapters. And at each, each chapter deals with like a specific technique or ingredient. Um, so there's a chapter about salt. There's a chapter about braising. There's a chapter about water. There's a chapter about onions. There's a chapter about acid, you know, so it's just, and, and there's recipes in there that you can, I think it's like your book. I mean, there's charts in there for songs that you've done charts for. Um, but it's also this process of like teaching people 
the the nuts and bolts of making a chart just like this book is sort of teaching people the the nuts and bolts of how food comes together um so for like uh you know this this book would obviously be useful and helpful for a drummer who does not know how to make charts or has never used charts before um sell sell this book to a drummer who's been using the Nashville system or their own sort of weird uh uh devised uh system for charts what is what is sort of the virtue of of uh, the system that you've developed here yeah so so my th- my um my thing is like i use standard notation and some just shorthand it's actually really simple i just kind of documenting what i think is important and how you can make it all fit on one page and make it clear yeah. it's not intended it's not intended to replace the nashville system it's not intended to replace anybody's system it's just this is how i do it maybe this could help you mm-hmm. um on a gig the the i don't know the nashville number system but uh i know that it's uh, um you know it it, I would. I know enough about it to know this is not intended to be anything that's going to replace that. But most most of the guys that I know that know the Nashville number system, they. I know you can use it if you don't read music. But like Rich Redman and Jim Riley and Eddie Bayers and those guys, they read music. Yeah. You know? So so yeah, it's just it's not. It's like I would look at it like uh, um, the Zorro book and the future and future sounds are both in the sort of R and B funk world, mm-hmm. but they're they're very different, and you should do both. Right? They don't one doesn't replace the other. Yeah. That. that so my thing is like I, it's very coming from a very humble place. This is just my little collection of how I make charts with some that might help you out. I think it's kind of fun. Maybe it'll help you. Yeah. It's not supposed to be the be all end all. You know, I know everything about how to make a chart. It's not that. I guess the last thing I want to talk about is just the the taking center stage project, um, and you know it 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 still feels uh, very recent that we lost Neil, and um, you know just speaking for myself, I just I still love talking about it, and, and I'm sure people still love hearing about him. So, um, can you just talk about your experience of like working with him for that project, um, and kind of what you came away from your uh, professional and personal relationship, uh, from like what, what you, what you took from those, those relationships with him. So, um, this could, this could get to be a a very long (laughs) story and and, um, I'll try to keep it short. Well, I'm sure Uh, people will listen. (laughs) So, um, you know, he was my hero as a kid. Um, my hero. I played along to Rush for three hours a day yeah. when I was in grade, eighth grade, you know, had his poster on my wall. Um, went to see him at all the Rush concerts and stuff, you know, um, and then found out that he was, you know, from reading that he was a humble guy, I, I figured I, I was never the kind of fan that would like, you know, fan that would like wait for bands to come out. I, you know, I never did anything like that anyway, but, um, you know, got into the drum biz, started doing my thing and stayed a big fan. And, um, 
I looked at it as like a different thing. He was never, he was too private to ever be at any of the drum conventions or anything. Yeah. You know, and I started meeting a lot of my other favorite drummers. And then when I got with Hudson, I mean, it was like floodgates are open. But, you know, you go to the NAMM show, you get to walk up to some of your favorite players. So I, I started getting acclimated to that. You know, then playing with some guys, you know, in New York. And Neil was always kind of off in his own corner, you mm-hmm. know. I knew when I had the Hudson gig that Rob and Paul had done his previous two drum videos. And um, also the guy who used to do the light and laser show for my Rush cover band got hired by Rush. <laughs> and and he, he brought me backstage and he let me see the drums. And, and um, he was like, whatever happens, if the band gets near you, do not speak or approach to them. You know, do not speak to them or approach them. So I saw Neil off in the distance and I was like, man, wow, there he is. I'm sort of like in the same room with him. It'd be yeah. cool to meet him, but I, I won't. It's, you know. He probably wouldn't like it like very much anyway, because I know everything about his playing and his work. You know, right, right. So uh, a couple years into the Hudson gig, Rob and and Paul said, you know, we just had happened to get back in touch with Neil, and we think he might be ripe for doing a project. So we'd like you. We know you know his work very well. We'd like you to write a proposal for him. So by this time, I had been working with Rob and Paul long enough that they trusted me with their artists. You know, yeah. Uh, and so uh, I wrote a proposal for Neil, and it went to him, and he uh, gradually came around to it. Hmm. Like uh, he he was intrigued by how I, um, like the que- the things I was talking about. It was apparent to him that I was like a student of the drums, a professional, a teacher. Like it wasn't fan quite. It was it was a very detailed analysis, and I wanted to get him to go back and talk about some of his past work, and so. Uh, so anyway, he he eventually agreed to do it. Now, mind you, I ne- I had no contact with him at this point. Mm-hmm. So after I went through a couple of iterations of the outline, uh, then Rob said, "Well, he seemed like he would be into it." And then Rob said to him, "If you f- we might go forward this with this, it might be good for you to meet Joe to make sure that you'd be comfortable." And so then that was the big day. Rob, Rob took me. They were playing here in New Jersey at PNC Bank Art Center, and Rob took me down, and we went backstage, and I met Neil. I met him on his bus, and I, uh, I, I could recite to you every detail of the whole day. Um, <laughs> it was it was great. He brought me out to his drum set. Um, you know, I always tell the story. I always hear my old man and my his voice in my head. Like I finally listened to his his advice when I, I said hi to Neil, and then I kept hearing my dad say. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. (laughs) So I I just stayed quiet. And then, you know, eventually he, you know, I I didn't want him to think I was going to come in and just be, you know, just annoyingly like, oh, my God, you know, thank you for the years of inspiration. He would be like, get this guy out of here. Right, right. Um, so anyway, he brought me out to his drum set and we, we talked shop and, and um, he was just a pure, pure gentleman. And I was instructed by Rob not to talk about the project. Huh. It was just for him to meet me and just see, you know. And uh, so it was cool. He was super great. And, uh, you know, I was that, – that day, if it had ended there, it would have been great. So then when we were leaving that day, he said, like, it was really nice meeting you, Joe. I'm looking forward to working on this project with you. And I was like, you know, so we left. Rob like clapped me on the back. Good job, kid. You know? <laughs> and, 
and then uh, then we just went through working on the project, and um, we filmed his rehearsals at uh, Drum Channel for the for the uh, Time Machine Rush tour. Well, before and then before we f- you go on, I just I just wanted to like hang a lantern on something because that that was another situation in which you knew the job, right? It had nothing to do with playing, but in that situation with Neil, you knew that your job was not to be a fanboy and you know powder his ass. It was to show up in the room as like a potential collaborator, a potential partner, someone he could work with, someone he could trust. Um, and you comported yeah, yourself I, I, that way. Thank you. But you know, let, let's face it. Like when you're, when you're being to brought, brought in to meet with Neil Peart, Keith Carlock, Steve Smith, like you have to keep in mind, like I could screw up the biggest project from my company of the year here. Right. Right. You know? It's not, it's, it's like, you know, so, um, so yeah, but thank you. I did, I did have that on my mind and, um, and you know what? I mean, you know, after a while, you just sort of, for as larger than life as he was, he's a guy. Right. Freaking guy. Like we're, it's, I, I, I think that there's certainly, I'm sure some celebrities who don't think that, you know, they they think they're, and not just celebrities, but people who feel like they're more privileged and special, you know, made of a different, you know, mm-hmm. Neil's not one of those people. He's, he's, Part of the reason why he was so private is he's trying to preserve some kind of like normal life. Right. Yeah. And he and he was completely not into being recognized. I was I was with him when he was recognized, and he it got to the point where he just didn't even want to be recognized at all. Like he would just completely withdraw if he was recognized. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we um, over the course of doing the production, meeting with him in California for the for the filming his rehearsals. And then um, we filmed the documentary parts of it in Death Valley. That was his idea. Huh. And, uh, and then and I got to interview him. And then through the course of that, we became friends. So, you know, like when we were finished shooting in Death Valley, I was up early and I, I thought he had been gone on this motorcycle already. I went to the diner, you know, the, uh, the little restaurant like in, uh, what's that place called? Stovepipe Wells in Death Valley. It was hmm. just so cool this amazing national park and like interviewing Neil Peart about his work. He wanted to juxtapose the natural scenes against the dark lit stage. Yeah. Yeah. Always thinking artistically. Um, and I remember we finished the shoot and I came in and he was still there. He was, he was eating breakfast by himself looking over his, you know, scrapbook. And I was like, even having spent all those hours with him over the course of several months now at this point, I was like, Oh man, I, I'm not gonna just go to his table. I just, <laughs> so I so I just let the waitress seat, seat me at another another table. Yeah. And then he looked up, and saw me, and he and he and he's like, hey, "Hey man, come on, come on over. What are you doing? Come on over here." Right, right. And I was like, "Oh, cool." And then he showed me his scrapbook, and it was like at that point I was like, "Wow, he he's gonna hang out with me willingly now." This is interesting. <laughs> right, right. Um, anyway, then after that we were kind of friends, you know, and and um. We talked about a lot of other things besides drums. You know, he he he's one of the smartest people I, I had ever met. Yeah, you know, and I've, I have a lot of other interests besides drums. So we we had a lot of things we talked about, and um, and uh, he he wound up being like I wish every fan could have met him. He was just smart, nice. Like part of the reason why Rob pointed out to me, he's an old fashioned gentleman. Like he didn't like saying no to people. Mm. And when, when you're when everybody in the world wants a piece of you, and you and you're it's hard to like, so he, he, he would try not to put himself in a position where he'd have to say no to people, you know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, we, we, we were 
after that, we finished the project. And when Rush would come through town, you know, I would be like, you know, can I come to a show? And he, he only liked having guests before the show. Mm. He would never have many guests at all, only like two or three people. So he would, he would get me tickets. And if, it, if I was with a drummer he knew or wanted to meet, like one time he wanted to meet Dom. Mm. So I'm like, well, I'll come and I'll bring him with me. He'd be like, even better, I'll be comfortable. Um, and I brought my son. He let me bring my son. If I, if I wanted to bring other friends, he would get me tickets, but he would never let me come backstage with people he didn't know. Hmm. The only time he did it was with Dom and my son. That was it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, but if I came alone, I'd go hang out, you know? Right. And then um, he lived in LA, of course, for the last uh, part of his life. When I would go out for a gig or whatever, I would email him a few weeks ahead of time and I would say, you know, I'm coming into town. Can we, you know, you want to meet for lunch? And I would go to his secret hideout, the Hilode Bubba Cave. Which uh, I could say now it was it was it was right off the 405 in downtown LA. You would never know he was in there. <laughs> he kept his kept his cars there. He he lived in Santa Monica, but he kept his cars there. And um, that's where we would go. We would sometimes his other buddies would be there. Chris Stanky from Sabian. Right, right. And, uh, but a lot of times I'd go alone, and we would just hang out. And it was like, as I said when I wrote his eulogy on Hudson, it was like he was two guys. He, he was my friend, who's this old fashioned, really smart, kind of nerdy gentleman you know, that was my buddy that we would talk about anything. And he would, he would, for the record, entertain my rush questions. And, <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then on the other side, he was this superhero, you know, and I, I did hang out with him a lot after he was sick and it was, you know, it's just, he deserved to have more time to yeah. enjoy the fruits of his labors. And, uh, you know, he, he, you know, it's like, if you, if you, um, Think of his drumming career. He he had the ultimate. He he made he made it onto the highest mountain you could make it on. Yeah, everybody was envious of his success and his life. If you ask me, you know what are what are the some of the things I would never want to have happen to me? I'd say one of my children dying, my wife dying, and getting terminal cancer. Yeah, all three. So, yeah, so I feel bad for him actually. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I, we all do. Um, and you know, like I said, I think the, the, the loss is still pretty raw for, for, um, you know, those of us who, uh, idolized him, uh, and especially for, for those of you who, who had friendships with him. Um, but I, uh, I appreciate you giving us a little, a little portrait of him because it's just, it's good to, it's good to hear about him, you know, whether yeah. it's musically or personally, like, he was just so, so consummate in, in so many ways, you know, just so yeah. many, so many, uh, lessons to learn, learn there. I, I think, I think I would never have said this to him because you would have gotten mad at me for saying it. Cause I would, I would be contradicting what, what he said in limelight and everything. But the reason why so many people were so affected by his death was because he did like, you did kind of know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a great insight because like, you know, unlike other drummers, like, uh, you know, other, other drummers who we idolize, which, you know, the list is, is a million names long, but you know, we had an insight because of his writing, because of his lyrics, we had an insight into Neil, um, the way, you know, not, we, we don't, we don't have that sort of insight into most of our drumming heroes, but, um, yeah, because of his writing, we we did feel like we had we we knew him in some kind of special way that we didn't know some other guys. Yeah. 
Yeah, man. Uh, man. Well, good memories of Neil. Appreciate you oh, sharing those. My pleasure. And, th- and thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for talking, man. All right, brother. Thank you. There you go. Joe Bergamini, badass drummer and all-around straight shooter. You can see why so many projects have been entrusted to him behind the drums and otherwise. Thanks to Joe for that talk. Hope you dug that. As you heard at the top of the episode, we are proud to have joined the Drum Click Podcast Network. Visit thedrumclick.com to check out the family of drum-centric podcasts we are now a part of. Next week, Matthew Krause will be talking with drummer and percussionist Blake Fleming, whose resume includes the Mars Volta and many others, and has just published his first book called The Book of Rhythm. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, get vaxxed, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.